everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, December 25th. Amanda Borchel-Dan here, joined by our culture critic, live from New York, Jordan Hoffman. Hello, my friend. Hello. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Uh, Kwanzaa tomorrow. Boxing Day. The whole schmear. <laughs> A big, big kiss to everybody from New York City. So good to see you. Now, we're doing something a little different today, listeners, and we're stepping out of the news cycle for a day in which many Jews in the world seek their Chinese food and a movie. So we're going to delve into Jordan's top 10 moments of Jewish entertainment for 2022. I'm so excited. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Dear listeners, for any of you who would prefer a podcast of more weighty matters, please check out our recently released mini-series about looming legislation that could just shift the face of Israel. You can find Israel's judiciary, reform, or ruin anywhere you get your podcasts. But... We're back to Jordan now. And Jordan, before we enumerate the top moments, I want to hear a little bit more about how you actually put this extremely objective list together. (laughs) Um, I looked back at the year and I looked at my favorite things that I saw as a critic for Times of Israel and for other news outlets throughout the the nations. And, um, And then I said, okay, these are my favorite things. Which of them were Jewish? And um, the ones that were Jewish are sometimes very obvious, like Steven Spielberg's memoir film about growing up as a Jew. And um, some of them are a little less obvious. Um, And, uh, you know, some of my favorite things this year were not made by Jews. It's okay. Sometimes the Goyim do all right. You know, it happens. We salute the Goyim once in a while. (laughs) But a lot of the really best stuff this year uh, came from Jewish creators, Jewish writers, directors, Jewish musicians. I did say uh, in the preamble, I did write that, um, you know, I try to cover everything in culture, theater, movies, television, music, um, and I try to read new books too, but sometimes they take a lot of time. And um, of of the books I read in 2022 that were new to this year, uh, uh, I read four, three of them were by Jews. But none of them made the top 10. Sorry. Try again next year. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Okay, yeah. fine. So let's start with your number 10, which I have to say could not be more Jewy, I think. Is is this the Jewiest of all? Well, which Fleischmann is in trouble? That, is that number yes. 10? Yeah, it's it's pretty Jewy. 
And what's funny is the reason it's number 10, I got to give it an asterisk, is because it's a current series. And even though uh, many critics have watched it all the way through, I have not. I've only seen the first four episodes, so I can't judge it all the way. This is based on a novel written by um, a journalist and, and novelist named Taffy Ackner, who's a local New York, New Jersey Jewess, who's a lot of fun. And um, it's set in the few block radius of the Upper East Side of Manhattan, right near the 92nd Street Y. And um, what I love about it so much is that it's very Jewish um, at its core, but it doesn't really, it just makes assumptions that like, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, okay, you can still watch the show. Like there are just references to Shabbat dinner and um, flashbacks to a, um, a semester in Israel and um, just things here and there, but it's of the world, you know? And I like that, you know, when I go to see a film that's, you know, set in uh, China or Mongolia or something, I don't want to have a, a character that's interpreting everything for me. I want to be submerged in that world and just kind of figure it out for myself. So I think for somebody who doesn't understand the very particular world of very wealthy, very privileged New York Jews, which are different from other New Yorkers on the Upper East Side, this this show is for them. I mean, what's so funny is that the main character played by Jesse Eisenberg is a very successful specialist. He's a liver specialist at a New York City hospital. In any other context, this would make him a, you know, a person of very high regard, like, oh my God, you know, he must be very wealthy. He's very successful. But in the rest of the community, he's like a deadbeat because he's only a doctor. He's not a financier. He, you know, not a movie producer, this sort of thing. It's so funny. Now, the next uh, item on your list, I have to say, made me actually physically ill when I watched the trailer. Oh, blood relatives. <laughs> blood relatives made you sick, huh? Well, that's good. Um, this b blood relatives is a fun little. It's a very micro budget film uh, made by an actor named Noah Segan, and you've seen him in a lot of stuff. If you've seen the Knives Out movies with um, what's his name, Daniel Craig, who, by the way, is raising Jewish children, so he's probably you know he's a very righteous man. Uh, Daniel Craig. Uh, this guy shows up in all those films. You know, he's he's part of that scene. Um, and he wrote and directed his own little movie, and it's about vampires. It's about the wandering Jew, the concept of the wandering Jew, but he spun it on his head and made it about vampires. So yeah, there's some eating of raw meat and, you know, but there's also a lot of Yiddish in there too. It's a nice little movie on the streaming service called Shudder, which in North America is, if you like horror movies or genre films, Shudder's a great buy. It's like six bucks a month, and it's like a very curated thing. You know, you go to Netflix, there's 400,000 things to watch on Netflix. What do you do? You go to Shudder and it's more curated. And I think it's sometimes a, a better way to figure out what to do uh, in the evening when you actually have 90 minutes to spare, which I know, Amanda, is very rare in your world. <laughs> it never happens. And, <laughs> and that's why I'm not even surprised that I've never even heard of the next item on the list, which shame on me, really. It's by an Israeli filmmaker even, and I don't remember it. Yeah, well, that does not surprise me because the, the film is called Ahed's Knee, um, and the filmmaker is Nadav Lapid. And from what I understand, and this does happen time to time in Israel and other countries, too, in, in Taiwan, in India, um, where there'll be somebody who's a big success on the Snooty Pants International Film Festival circuit, and they'll win awards at Berlin and at Cannes. Uh, as Nadav Lapid has done, but in their home country is just like, who watches this stuff? Nobody. It's a little bit arty-farty is what I'm trying to say. Nevertheless, this is the fourth feature-length film from Nadav Lapid. We've interviewed him before because uh, his last film, Synonyms, won the top prize at Berlin. This won an award at Cannes, not the top prize, but like third place. Um, 
And it's it's about it's kind of about himself. It's about a, a dissident Israeli filmmaker kvetching about Israeli society. It's it's uh, you know, he's it, it's it's a somebody who thinks that Israeli society is going down the toilet and it's his creed decor, if you will. But it's done in a humorous way, in an artistic way. It's all set in the Arava desert and um you know, it's uh, it's a very good movie about an artist at wit's end. It's called Ahed's Knee. So I give that one a shot if you can find it. Okay, 90 minutes maybe, but this next item is seven hours. There is absolutely no way, though I have to admit I probably edited about seven hours of articles on this film because we covered on the series, I should yeah. say, because we covered it so much. And what is this? Yeah, you're talking about the U.S. and the Holocaust, which is the um, PBS broadcast uh, documentary from Ken Burns and two associates, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. So there's like three three credited directors on this one. And I'll be very frank with you. As you know, Amanda, we've been working together for over a decade. Holocaust documentaries are common. And, I, and obviously I respect them all, but I've been doing this for a while. And when a new Holocaust documentary comes across, I go, I look for an excuse not to see it at this point. I'm like, how can I get out of this one? But I'm like, no, Ken Burns, he's the big guns. Let's take a look. And within 15 minutes of the, as you say, seven hours, I'm like, okay, this is a big deal. And the reason why it's special is, um, and why I think it will, it's important for our listeners is, um, I would say by and large, people who read Times of Israel, listen to this podcast, have have a good education about the Holocaust. They, they, they know the basic, the basic drill. This is coming at it from a very unique point of view and it's really about it's everything is done through the lens of the american response american reaction and in some cases not a direct one-to-one but the american culpability in in the holocaust you know what could have happened better uh and the answer is not always pretty i mean it's 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 not to say you know no the americans weren't shoving people into train cars that's true but there was a lot of willful you know, out of sight, out of mind. And it's detailed very, very well. And it's important, I think, because there are parallels to current, you know, uh, current times. Henry Ford, Kanye West. I mean, it's ridiculous to put the two in the same sentence because one, you know, created automobiles, which is, you know, important. And the other guy is a schmuck in a puffy jacket. But they have big audiences, you know, and they were both, one is still alive. They are both anti-Semites with a big audience. And there is a connection you can make between the 30s and 40s and today that is crystal clear when you watch a documentary like this. Okay, now this next item is, shall we say, Holocaust adjacent, not really about the Holocaust, but kind of about the Holocaust. We're talking about Russian Doll. Oh, yeah, Russian Doll. This was from earlier in the year, and this was a a great thing because when I was putting this list together, I, I kind of forgot about it because it was from the beginning of the year. Uh, this is season two of the Netflix series. And when you hear series you're like, oh, my God, that's a big commitment. It's pretty short. I think the whole thing is like two and a half hours. They're short episodes. You kind of do need to see the first one. But this is not a homework assignment. This is really, really fun. It's, uh, you know, kind of a science fiction premise of Natasha Leone, who's this big, loud, joyous, bushy haired, redhead Jewess from New York who will remind you of your favorite aunt who has all kinds of Michigas. Last season, she was looping through time a la Groundhog Day. Now she's traveling through time. She gets on a subway 
uh, down at Astor Place in New York City and winds up in the 80s and she becomes her mother. I don't mean that in a metaphorical sense. I mean, she literally somehow she looks in the mirror and sees her mother's face and she's living her mother's life. But then she gets on another train and ends up in Budapest during the Second World War. And it is a comedy, but it's serious. And it's about, you know, the issues that plague the Jewish community today, gen generational trauma and, um, you know, what makes us tick. It's also extremely funny at times, but also very serious and very, very, very well put together. I was a big fan of this. Okay, that was the first five. We're going to go to a short break and then come back with the rest. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we are back. Now, next on the list is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. This is making a lot of headlines right now, in fact. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is, uh, on it, the most simple terms, it's a documentary about the artist-photographer Nan Golden. But it's, you know, the, the documentaries about artists are very common. You see them on television all the time. You go, okay, now I know more about their work. This one is a little bit special. In fact, it, it won the top prize at the Venice Film Festival. The, uh, not top documentary, top prize in general. It's only happened once before at the Venice Film Festival. That's the oldest film festival in the world. Um, what makes it special is it's two things. One is that it does sort of go through her life and her work, uh, which in itself is fascinating. She was a downtown artist. She you know, was enriched in this sort of underground milieu in the 80s, um, you know, documented the AIDS crisis. And, you know, had a lot of cool friends, you know, listened to a lot of, had a lot of great music in her life and made these slideshows that were like events. Now, she is doing something that the U.S. courts cannot do, which is holding the Sackler family uh, a culpable for, uh, for their crimes against humanity. I think it's, I know TOI has covered the Sackler family and, you know, what, what, what their whole story is, uh, Purdue Pharma. And it's pretty clear if you if you look look at it that this is a group of people who actively harmed everybody for profit. You know, was well aware that these drugs they were prescribing were not safe as they said they were. Got a lot of people hooked. Got a lot of people killed. Nan Golden um, was one of these people who got addicted to this medication, survived, and decided what she she could do is use her clout as one of the more important contemporary artists 
to get the Sacklers where it hurts um, because part of their whole scheme is up until very recently, you go to any museum uh, in, in London, in New York, all over the place, the Sackler wing at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, all the cool Egyptian stuff, which everybody goes to take a selfie of, that's in the Sackler wing, the former Sackler wing, because what she did was she staged demonstrations and said, no, you got to take this down. And it's funny, uh, you know, these are people that really uh, evaded all the uh, trials and are still living very wealthily and, you know, personally have not been harmed, um, even though the company has been dissolved and is bankrupt and whatnot. But they got their names taken off the museums. And that's a minor victory. You know, they're not, it's art washing. They're getting rid of the art washing. I know in Israel, there's the Sackler School of Medicine. That's an in-between. They took the name down in some regards, but didn't go all the way. I don't know what's going to come from that. But when you watch this movie, you're going to be intrigued about how it blends, you know, her artwork and her activism and how they really are the same thing. That's the thesis is that she's been doing the same work the whole time. Why is a Jewish? Nan Golden is Jewish. The director of the film is not. Uh, Nan Golden's a very interesting woman and a uh, great film. Okay, the next item is actually a play. And after reading your treatment of it, my father, in fact, bought tickets and went out and saw it all the way from Indiana to New York. Whoa. So it is, yeah, it's Leopoldstadt by Tom Stoppard. Did, did, but just let back it up for a second. Was he planning to be in New York anyhow? Or he said, no, I'm going to New York and just to see this play. Jordan, you're powerful, but you're not that powerful. (laughs) (laughs) That's great to hear. That's great to hear. I'm glad he had a good, I hope he had a good time. Anyhow, Leopoldstadt is a fascinating and upsetting work by Tom Stoppard, who is um, an elder statesman in theater. Uh, You know, he's won every award one could imagine. It's, it's, this is probably the last thing he'll, he'll write. And it's very loosely based on his life experiences. He did not know that he was Jewish until he was in his 20s. Um, his mother escaped, um, I believe it was Hungary, uh, and, cha- and married an Englishman and, and changed the name and blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, in the play, it's changed a little bit to Vienna, and it's a whole family tree. It's like 40 speaking parts. You know, it's a big whirlwind, and it's not, it's just about what is it about? It's a big, big, big play. What is it about? It's hard to say what it's about. <laughs> On the surface, it's about this multi-generational family, starting in the year 1899 and going through the 1950s and just seeing how a very big and opinionated Jewish family reacts to history. I, I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, but it's just, it's just very witty and very smart and even though there are so many speaking parts there are there were times that i'm like wait who's this guy again how is he related to her it's just like you're in it you know it's just the 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 things that are happening are, are just very well put together i mean broadway shows are a lot of money i mean to go and even sit in the cheap seats there are no cheap seats at a broadway show so i i know i'm always hesitant to recommend a broadway show to somebody because if you don't like it it's like you just condemn somebody to something this is something that i think will appeal to people who th- whoever say why don't they write plays like they used to? You know, like a classic. And I think this this fits that bill. It feels like something big and classic and important. And it's not like a spin on a modern day retelling of this kind of story. It's not story within a story. It's not overly, you know, tricksy. It's just really good. So speaking of somebody who is really good, also a classic and also very big, your next item is... 
Barbara Streisand. Yeah, well, I wanted to include some music this year, and um, <laughs> one of my f- <laughs> one of my favorites is somebody I can't tell if he's Jewish or not, so I couldn't put him on the list officially. And his his Schmendrick publicist never got back to me. Of like, I'm pretty sure your guy's a Jew. Will you confirm? Anyway, that's that's an art. That's a whole conversation for one day when we do the podcast about what it's like writing for a Jewish uh, news organization. <laughs> we'll get into that. So I was thinking what was happening in music and what was happening in music was something from the archives. Barbara Joan Streisand, when she was 20 years old, 20, put out an album that most artists would slit their wrists to, to do at any time in their lives. It was a, something they threw off before she ever recorded her first album. Columbia Records signed her and she was doing nightclub gigs. And this was her second nightclub gig at the Café Bonsoir in Greenwich Village. It's not there anymore. Don't look for it. And it was just, they just recorded a couple of nights and they said, we're going to make this the album. And for whatever reason, they decided, you know what, uh, let's get her in the studio. We'll use the same repertoire. And and those that repertoire ultimately became the first three albums, which sold nine bazillion copies. So maybe the suits were right. They knew how to craft Barbara's career. So for all this time, for 60 years, these tapes have been sitting in a basement and no one's heard them. And they dug them up for the 60th anniversary, happens also to be Barbara's 80th birthday. They cleaned it up. It sounds crystal clear. And it's not just like, oh, some nightclub recording. I mean, she is phenomenal. She's as good as she's ever been at age 20, singing show tunes, singing uh, standards, uh, Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, those types of songs, doing shtick in between, telling jokes, joking with the band. It's a small combo. It's just drums, piano, bass, and, and a little guitar. And it's about an hour long, it's about an hour and seven minutes long, and it's the best thing ever. Even if you don't really like show tunes, cabaret music, you probably do and don't realize it. And you like it when it's Barbara, because this album, you feel like you just spent a night out on the town, because she's doing jokes in between, you're hearing people laugh. It's a great time. It's a great thing to put on in the car. It's called Barbara Streisand Live at the Café Bonsoir, and it's the album of the year. It happens to be 60 years old, but it's the album of the year. I'm going to look for it immediately. I was so shocked to see your number two because I was certain it would be your number one. So what happened here? Why is The Fablemans your number two? Okay. The, my number two pick is tied. They're basically tied for first place. But I did uh-huh. put something else at first place because I got to be me and I got to fight for the underdog. But let's get to first place in another. Let, let's say that even though it comes in at number two, Steven Spielberg's The Fableman, Fablemans is a major, major achievement. And uh, it is as good as anything he's done. Obviously, it's very different from Jaws. It's very different from Jurassic Park. It's very different from Schindler's List. The guy, <laughs> the guy's a household name because he's really good. He makes really good movies. And this is a phenomenal memoir film. It's his version of Federico Fellini's uh, Amarcord of Woody Allen's Radio Days. It's his memories of childhood, but it does have a very specific point, which is you're watching him develop and become the one of the world's most famous filmmakers. Now, that doesn't mean it gets corny that there are scenes of him looking at the stars going, gee, I wonder if there are aliens out there. There's none of that. <laughs> I, w- I was very worried that there was going to be a scene of him at the beach and there was going to be a shark. And there is even is a very important scene at the beach in this movie. I'm like, oh, no, is there going to be a shark? No, it's not corny at all. It's stuff from his childhood and um, about the actual traumas of his childhood. He did not have the happiest of childhood. His, his parents split up at a time when divorce was less common, particularly in the Jewish community. 
Um, and uh, the reasons why they split up are, as you'll see in the film, he he was he was aware that his parents were going to split up before his parents were, and it's because of his mastery of cinema. What I mean by that is he was always taking home movies and he was looking through the camera, realized that his parents were no longer in love and that it was Uncle Benny, Seth Rogen, that his mother really loved. Not not a real uncle, you know, friendly uncle. And, um, and it's all true. And then later in the film, uh, when they move from Arizona to California, uh, to a very anti-Semitic uh, neighborhood and he's being beaten up by anti-Semitic bullies, there is a sequence in which he uses the camera to uh, photo to take movies of the tall Aryan kids in a way that you're not expecting. I mean, he gets this comeuppance in a way that shows the power of cinema. It's a very, very complex and fascinating movie that he co-wrote. He very rarely writes his own films, but he co-wrote it with Tony Kushner it's the fourth time they've worked together. Tony Kushner, of course, the playwright behind Angels in America, and um, they are a great, a great pair. It's a major, major film. It's already out. I think you can pay to watch it on um, pay-per-view. It's like 20 bucks or so. Um, it is still in theaters. It looks great, too. It's a great movie to see in the theaters. Uh, it's, it's a masterpiece. It really is. Weirdly enough, though, number one is also a masterpiece. <laughs> it can happen that there are two in one year, huh? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so number one, I remember reading your interview with the director, with the director, right? Correct, and yes. It was, it was just a great time. So tell us about Armageddon Time. So yeah, my favorite movie of the year, t- basically tied for first place with, with, with The Fablemans, but not quite, is a movie that um, is called Armageddon Time by the writer-director James Gray. And I think this ultimately comes down to what speaks to me more. The Fablemans is about a young Jewish kid growing up in the 50s and 60s in Arizona and California. And Armageddon Time is about a young Jewish kid growing up in Queens, New York in the 80s. What's going to mean more to me? The basic premise is it's uh, a kid in the early 80s in Queens, uh, you know, working class family. Grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Grandfather played by Anthony Hopkins, who is not Jewish, but is phenomenal in this role. And um, he starts getting into trouble and he's got a black friend at school and he and the friend are, are, you know, getting detention up to no good. And the parents decide, basically, you can't hang out with your friend anymore. And it dips into, you know, what do we do to better society versus what do we do to better ourselves? And it's it's got a lot of very sort of like lofty, ethical, and moral questions it asks, but it's also just like a really touching story about family. And there are scenes in it that are incredibly realistic. Um, just like, you know, one minute the dad is just a cut up and he's singing songs. And the next minute he's, when he's at his wits ends, he's just a terror and, you know, beating the hell out of his kid. Uh, and it's just, um, it's just a really moving piece of work. And just the details are, are so perfect because he lived it. It's, this is, it's this guy's life story shot where it happened. And it also very funnily enough involves the Trump family because it's Queens in the eighties. And the, the way this guy interacted with the Trump family is very, is very special. And I think it, it, I think the reason some critics don't like it is that it, 
it, it expects its audience to be mature enough to connect the dots on their own. A lot of people want everything spoon-fed to them. And if you show a character who's doing something that is wrong, that must mean the movie is immoral, right? Well, no, not necessarily. It's, 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 that's not what James Gray wanted to do. In the interview that we published, he said he wanted to make the anti-virtue signaling film. And, you know, virtue signaling is something you hear about on the internet a lot of people who are always like, you know, people who waste a lot of time on Twitter, just like making sure everybody knows that they're on the right side of this issue. And that's not really how life is. It's certainly not how it people, when they look back at their childhood and realize what they did or what their parents did or how their grandparents made decisions for them. And it's very easy, I think, to make yourself look good in the past. But it's a lot more honest to say, yeah, this is the, here's, here's something terrible that I did when I was a kid. Here's how I sold out my friend. Here's how my parents sort of glossed things off, got me out of a jam. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, white privilege and where do Jews fit in in that. This, this is something that's interesting because a lot of people will accuse Jewish people of having white privilege. And some people say, well, no, how can they? Jews, Jews are the most are the most, uh, you know, condemned people out there. Look at what's happened to the Jewish people over the years. And the answer is, is it's not that simple. It's like, you got to take everything on a case-by-case basis. Maybe somebody can be in a liminal space in between. And that's what James Gray is putting down in this movie. And some people do not want to hear that. They don't want to hear that things are complicated and not easily labeled. So that's why, oh, that's why this movie got no award nominations and made no money. <laughs> Because <laughs> nobody wants to see something like that. But I'm telling you and I'm telling you, the listeners, it's absolutely brilliant. And it's my favorite movie of the year. Jordan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have a great new year. Go into January and do well. Uh, how many jelly donuts? How many latkes have you had so far? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.